This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, Triple R family. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and I'm quivering as I deliver this intro. I feel like a one-armed bloke in a boxing match. I feel quite a bit underpowered today. It's fair to say that our guests are pretty smart. In fact, you could say we have a little bit of medical royalty in the studio this morning. Yes, Prof Kerry Breen is in to talk about the drama and controversy surrounding the recent decision of the Australian Medical Association to outsource Australia's oldest and most revered medical journal, the Medical Journal of Australia, to an overseas company that I can't pronounce. I always say it Elsevier, but I think it's Elsevier. Elsevier, the French people can tell me, or someone like that anyway. Um, Prof Breen is a past president of the Medical Council of Australia, a past president of Medical Practitioners Board of Victoria, and a past chair of the Australian Health Ethics Committee of the NHMRC, and he actually calls himself Dr. Breen, I've just realised. But I'm so, I'm so slow on a Sunday morning. Do you feel my anxiety, people? Do you feel my anxiety? Next to Prof Breen, or Dr. Breen if I ever get it right, is Prof Margaret Hallard. I'm just going to go with Marg. Marg is the head of the Centre for Population Health at the Burnett Institute, where she's also an Associate Director. She's also a professor at Monash Uni, and Marg's going to talk about a revolution in the treatment of hepatitis C, people. Hepatitis C, a very important illness. Mm, yeah, it's tricky. What is the collective noun for a group of professors, by the way? If you know, put it on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. In fact, I've got it up, so if you want to chuck in some comments, do so. Also joining us is one of our favourites, Dr Activity, a senior Melbourne occupational therapist and a long-time radio commentator. We were just chatting about the good old days when she used to introduce bands and they'd often not turn up. So uh, Dr Activity is in with us this morning. Stay tuned, everyone. We've got a big show about to unfold. Let me say hello to you first, Activity. How are you? Yeah, I'm supposed to say busy. Activity is supposed to say busy, but it's a down weekend because we're celebrating her birthday. So everything's cancelled. We just sit down for an entire weekend. Oh, the Queen's birthday. I'm so slow. So slow. I'm so slow. We need to come up with a better name for a doctor activity. It's too occupational therapy. But I am an occupational therapist. I know, and it it is good. I mean, it's nothing wrong with being too occupational therapy. I I wanted to be the the enabler, but you wouldn't let me, remember? That would be good. You'd sound like a superhero. That's what I wanted. Kerry Breen. Kerry, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Dr Doolittle. Thank you so much for making the trip in here on this chilly Sunday morning. It is still chilly out there. It's great to have you in the studio. I'm looking forward to talking about NJ. Marg. How are you? I'm Steve. good. Have you been on this before, on this show? You have, haven't you? Yes, I have. A million times? Have I forgotten? I've got the worst memory. No, not a million times, just occasionally. It's re- a Sunday. I ran girls into, have got to sleep. I ran into, you know, because we get a lot of guests and stuff, I ran into uh, a professor in the corridor the other day at my hospital and stopped and had a little chat. How are you going? Good to see you. And he said, um, he said I heard you on the radio the other day. I said, you should come on sometime. And he said... I did last year. Oh, you interviewed me. Dear. Oh, how stupid am I? So, yeah, I'm so forgetful. Doesn't I think matter. it's because Sunday morning my yeah, brain's not turned on. It's no dramas. Hey, we I think it's a confusion of professors. <laughs> it's confusion. I think that's an excellent collective term for professors. I've been sitting here thinking of one. We call, with occupational therapists, of course, we get called a basket of OTs, which is <laughs> like not my favourite term. Is that like the pet hate of every yeah. OT yeah. in the world? Yeah. 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 I'm going to make sure I remember that. Because yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a shrink, a psychiatrist. Ours is, you know, I just would get, I'd still get asked all the time, you know, are, are you all 
all mad. I'd still get that. Yeah. The moment someone meets me, they step back and, oh, oh you guys are all mad. <laughs> I can't believe they have to ask. But <laughs> yeah, what's your collective noun for psychiatrists? Uh, a gaggle, I don't know. A gaggle. A psychobabble. A, a psychobabble <laughs> of psychiatrists. In medicine, we'd probably call them a dither. A dither. A they dither. are a dither, aren't you they? You do dither. That's true. Take <laughs> ages to do everything. Like, get to the point of what we're going to talk about. Hey, the first thing we wanted to talk about before we get into the serious stuff is um, we were having a bit of a laugh because we were reading an article in the paper that was in, it was in The Age and it was entitled, Are You Dying to no. Scientists develop test to predict if you'll make it to 2020. It was actually via the Daily Telegraph in London, but The Age republished it, and uh, it was from Sarah Napton. Anyway, I'll give you the gist of it. Um, it basically started by saying, you know, it might be the last thing you want to know, but scientists have got a test that accurately predicts your chance of dying within the next five years. And the test is for people between 40 and 70 years old. And you can, and you can answer a simple set of questions. It's about 10 or 15. It only takes about five minutes. And it gives you your probability, your chances of dying within the next five years. How charming. And it also gives you uh, an age. It gives you what they call, I think it's an UBL age. That's just the website. It's, a, an, acro- it's an acronym for something. And uh, so it gives you an approximate age which you can compare to your own. And the interesting thing about it, instead of most of these tests in the past that normally do blood tests or look at your genome or test your cholesterol or look at your blood pressure, some physical thing, this is all just based on questions like walking speed, your financial situation, previous illnesses, marital status, whether you've had you know, previous problems in the past. That's even things like depression. And uh, they reckon from just these questions alone that they can get a pretty good estimate of your five-year mortality risk and your age. And uh, they created the test by looking at around about a half a million British adults who had done some sort of survey and they collated all the information between 2006 and 2007. And then they figured out what were the life, what lifestyle factors were the um, most likely to uh, to predict your death. What do you reckon, team? Who's got another age? Is it, did anyone? I, we sent around the link. Um, I did. I did it. I, it just means I have to declare my age. Does that? And, no, which, and the fact that. that I'm struggling to declare my age declares my vanity. Yes. Anyway, so I go. That should from, be on the questionnaire, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. So I go from um, 51 down to 43 on my upper age. Oh, that's good. Yeah, Mark, feel free. Yeah, well, Just take plus or minus how many years. Yeah, no, no, I have no dramas. So I went from 52 down to 40. I mean, I had a bit of a play with it wow. because, as you well know, Steve, I'm a total dork when it comes to stuff like this. So well, I will, you are an epidemiologist. I know as well. And the other thing I've got to just chuck in because otherwise the Alfred will get a bit... Um, Fast is. I'm also an infectious diseases specialist at the Alfred. So oh no! I just yeah. need to throw that in, just so that the Alfred you, folks out there. I was only giving you a mini intro. I've got an even longer one for I know, later. But I just golf. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, no, but so Alfred I, is a wonderful institution. A, a fantastic institution. Wonderful hospital. Back to Abel. Back to Abel. Um, yeah. Look, I played around with it, being my epidemiologically dorkiness, um, and really was kind of fun. But. They, sort of the things that they led, the article led with was this, you know, brisk walking. So I decided to make myself, because I'm not a brisk yep. walker, a non-brisk walker, a brisk walker, or a sort of a slovenly walker. And it really didn't make much jot of a difference. So the kind of things where you could go, what could I do to change my health outcome so that I live beyond whatever... I wasn't yeah, overly impressed. I was amused, but not overly impressed. How do they get this, these sorts of things? As an epidemiologist, what's the sort of science behind how they predict these factors? Well, they would be would have a bunch of people where they would be looking at you know, all who lived things. and who died and yep. all of those kind of things and then trying to find a predictors of it. And then you're sort of within each one, and this is where, you know, on a Sunday morning I wasn't going to spend, do a thousand iterations of which were the, the, the key predictors of whether yep. or not you were going to die. But there would be some things in this list that would be a, a much higher predictor of your likelihood of dying early. And so, like, that sort of the question I would have thought in terms of... Um, 
anxiety, tension, depression, but also, you know, one of them is, has your doctor ever told you you've had cancer? Now, that's yeah. probably going to jump you up that list of, of whether you're likely to die in the mm. next More five so years. More so than being married, do you think? Oh, look, it's hard to know. It just depends. Know. You know, no, marriage, marriage, marriage doesn't helps, kill you. Apparently. It just makes you want to die. <laughs> <laughs> um. and, and so there's some of these that would really change things. Yeah. And if you played with the parameters. And there's others that are just there. Maybe they're big predictors for small little bits of age, but yeah. I'm not overwhelmed. What but did you think, Kerry? Did you ever go at it, or did you not want to know? Well, first of all, I was outside the age limit, 40 to 70, and I won't tell you which side. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, um, I passed a better test a few years ago. A what test? A better test a few years ago. I won't name my colleague, but I turned 60, and a colleague gave me a 50th birthday card. Oh, so that's <laughs> That's a great predictor. Because <laughs> yes. yeah. what about even those? Because most people, when they get turned 40, start um, you know, going to the doctor and doing all these tests. I know I... Well, the government... When I turned 50, the government sent me something in the mail and made me... A special test for you. You can name it, Steve. It's a test. I hated it. It broke but my you did heart. It. Did you do it? I did. Oh, he's blushing. I did. <laughs> you could all say it. I'm so sad. It was just... I'm just thinking about it. I'll stop thinking about it. I'll try and change my mind. Yeah. Do, do, you, do we want to know this information? Oh, for me, no. I just I, saw, I looked at it and thought, I've always been such a slow walker. If this is going to tell me to speed up, I'm just not willing to engage in the process. So, you know, yeah. for me, I, I don't know, five years, five years, unless uh, five years also is not long enough for me. I want to know. I want an exact moment in time. <laughs> You're going to die on the 22nd of June, yeah. 2024 yeah. at 3 p.m. Exactly. That's what I want. And if they can't give me that, I won't, I'm not, I won't engage. If, if you think about what the government wants to know, if we want to mm. be awful about yeah. it, it, is or what most people want to know is actually when are they going to die sometime between like after they're finished working and trying to think how much their savings exactly. need to be in these things mm. and so this does as I said this to me is sort of fun yeah and it's the kind of thing that you do on a Sunday morning mm. but which one of these things the questions would change what you do what would I say as a doctor to somebody or what would a punter say yeah when they read this and go oh I'm definitely going to change that because I never knew that once before in my life mm. I didn't see anything on the list mm. that yeah. said Maybe if people think about their health more, if doctors think about their medical history they take, that's important. The, you know, are we asking people questions and listening to their answers? So maybe, but, you know. You know, the other thing that's interesting, epidemiology looks at associations between things. Mm. So if you change one of these risk factors, there's not necessarily an evidence base that says that that will improve. There's not one that says it won't. Mm. But the classic example sometimes people I hear bring up, although I don't understand the details and I haven't read it for a while, is salt. You know, if you've got a high salt intake, you have a higher risk of dying at a younger age. However, there's not strong evidence that if you decrease your salt intake, you can move yourself whereas you can say for smoking if you quit smoking and you're a regular smoker and you don't quit smoking there's a strong evidence base that says within about five years your risks return to a a level not quite as a non-smoker but they they decrease significantly Mm. And walking's the um, that walking question. Even to not particularly scientific me, I can see that's a throw-in. It's just an association. Why do you reckon they chucked it in? To annoy me, I think, <laughs> so that I can't be mindful in my walking and smell the roses. I have to speed up like those women who look like they've missed the bus. Because that's what got me on the walking. I'm like a super brisk walker. I yeah, fly down the corridor of my hospital so fast. Yeah. I sometimes it's knock to people, avoid people over. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's to, you know, but, and, and I sometimes think that's a sign of stress, which is normally mm. d- down as. Whereas I'm calm. Yeah, you're well, calm. It's a sign of his personality, I think. Mm. Yeah, probably. I talk fast. I walk fast. <laughs> I even sleep fast. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio. 
It's not every day that a bunch of very senior doctors turn radical and set up a protest site. But that's what's happened with Friends of the Medical Journal of Australia, Friends of the MJA. For over 100 years, the MJA has been published by AMP Co, which is a fully owned subsidiary, subsidiary of the Australian Medical Association, until a recent decision to outsource the publishing to an overseas company, Elsevier. Friends of the, of the MJA, which includes a steering committee that reads like a who's who of Australian medicine, is a site dedicating to have this decision reversed, essentially, I think, although we'll find out. And as I said before, Dr Kerry Breen is a specialist physician. He's been a member of the of, um, AMA for 50 years and a regular contributor to and reviewer for the um, Medical Journal of Australia. He currently holds post of adjunct professor in the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash, and he's a past president of the Medical Council of Australia and a past president of the Medical Practitioners Board of Victoria and a past chair of the Australian Health Ethics Committee of the NHMRC. Pretty, pretty, pretty big titles. And uh, so thanks again, Carrie, for coming in. Thank you. Why don't you get the ball rolling by explaining to us exactly how a journal works, as in, as in you know, where the articles come from, what's the issue? I always assume they're a bit like a book. So tell us how they, how they work. Well, it is in a way. Uh, it's a book of short stories that comes out every two weeks. Um, right. But basically, um, it depends for its content on the voluntary submissions of all sorts of authors around the country. Mostly, mm-hmm. Most of them are medical, but not all medical authors. And some of them write opinions. Some publish or seek to publish original research, including epidemiological research and research involving hepatitis and um, Aboriginal health, etc. And they submit, and the journal decides which of those things will be published, and they come out every two weeks. And this has been going on for 100 years. It is undoubtedly not only the premier medical journal in Australia, it's really the only general journal into which most of the health issues that relate purely to Australians are published. If Mm -hmm. if a young researcher thinks he's going to get a Nobel Prize and has a breakthrough that will help the whole of the world, he won't submit that to the Medical Journal of Australia. That that will go to a a major international journal because they want international coverage. But really the Medical Journal is where stuff of value and interest to the health professions and the wider community is published in Australia. Right, and they also seem to take a role in leadership in health, you know, through editorials and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they're always looking for editorial opinions, and, and and to get an opinion piece published in the in the Medical Journal of Australia is really tough. I mean, you've got you've, it, it's always peer reviewed, it's always critically looked at, and it's, it, it's 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 really big time. So, how do you decide which what gets published and what doesn't get published? Oh, you'd have to ask an editor that. But, but um, I think they look at uh, immediate impact, whether the issues are current and topical, and, and how valuable the research is. And, and the editor doesn't depend just on that single person, they've got a big editorial team yes. and more importantly, most things are set out for peer review mm. which means, I mean I've been a peer reviewer and I've received peer reviews and you'll get two or three people who don't know who you are and you don't know who they are, they'll write thoughtful critiques of your article mm. mostly they're very helpful occasionally you get a reviewer that wants to argue with you mm. but, you, but you, usually they're very helpful and you improve it and, and if you can improve it to a certain standard, the editor might say we'll publish it but I think the knockback rate is probably higher than 50% mm. Yeah, so the peer review process is used for lots and lots of journals. I mean, the, the MJ is really important. I will publish some of my research and our group's research will, will send into an international journal of a particular topic or the like. But particularly when we're wanting to have a conversation, what I would call a conversation with the Australian doctors and say something is new, something is important, we would like you, even if this is not your specialist area, because they're invariably generalists, and we want to let them know about it. So say some of the areas, say, with HIV or for hepatitis C, depending on what we're, or sexual health, if we want to sort of 
of say, we think you should be testing young women for chlamydia age 16 to 29, um, the place where that conversation has to happen is some science that can happen, but you also want to make sure that conversation happens in a journal like the MJA so that the readers are aware that these are things that are changing. Similarly, you know, we'll talk about it later, but the hep C stuff, you want those those people to know these important changes are taking place. So it's a really good place to get that information across. Mm. It seems to me the journals, you know, they have... So they've got multiple roles, a journal like the MJA. It's got, obviously, the scientific role for local people to publish and for other people to publish science that's relevant to Australia. It's got that health advisory role. And some of the other roles, I think, are a little bit more subtle. It's got a key role... There's a key role, obviously, for academic promotion. It's the number one way academics get promoted is through publications. And the other tricky bit is it's got a key role in advertising things because they're full of advertising... not full of advertising, but, you know, about, I don't know, a fifth of the pages seem to be devoted to advertising in a journal. So they have this this complex sort of relationship with medicine. So, Kerry, what happened at the MGA? What's what's gone on? Well, I think probably about 15, 18 months ago, the the board, in principle, took a decision that they were very worried about the the cost of producing the journal, Mm -hmm. and and, and it is partly subsidised by the AMA membership, and that's very common around the world. Most associations and colleges that produce journals have it subsidised by the annual subscription fees, Yep. but they were worried about the increasing cost of publication. They decided they'd look to outsource it. Right. Um, and they chose Elsevier, and uh, there are reasons for uh, thinking that was a bad choice. We'll come back to that. And then they found that they, they didn't... It, it seems to me that they did not bring the editor-in-chief into the out of the, in, into the picture until quite late in the piece, till the decision had actually been made, and then they were unable to listen to his very well-thought-out arguments as to why that was a bad decision, and so they decided they were part ways. And it wasn't just parting ways. They, they, they sacked... Professor Leader and, and walked him out the door. Right. So that all became public early in May, mm-hmm. and the the outcry amongst senior academics around the country is really astounding. Right. And um, I was getting emails from all sorts of friends around the place, and I thought this has got to be channelled somewhere. And luckily, I had had experience about a year earlier of realising how easy it is to set up a website because a medical friend set up a website for another association, and it was put up in about a day. And so we decided to spend a bit of money and get a website there. And the purpose of the website is not to push our side of the story. The purpose Mm -hmm. is to bring every single document that exists about this debate out into the open so mm-hmm. that people can make up their own mind. Yeah, I thought it was a very balanced yeah. website. It's called Friends of MJA, MJA yeah. if anyone wants to jump on their computers. Yeah, um, and, and anyone that signs up has a choice of saying, I support the decisions of the Australian Medical Publishing Company, mm-hmm. I'm undecided, or I support the views of the steering committee because in one spot on the, on the website we give our steering committee's views which are strongly opposed to the decisions that have been taken by MCO. Kerry, tell me what... what is the role of an editor? Now, I understand the you know traditional concept of editor, but it sounds like an editor at a medical journal um, has has more power than just editorial content. They're in some ways, they're like a they've got a, a bit of a not quite CEO, but a more senior role. So what does an so what does an editor do? Um, I've never edited, but but my appreciation of it is that they set the tone and direction of mm-hmm. the sort of articles. They have a, a big influence on, on, on what's decided, but they work with a team. As we've already said, they're influenced by peer review as well. But but if, if you've ever been a serious reader of a particular journal and you see a new editor to come in, you can often readily sense a slight or even more than a slight change in direction of the journal. So they, they are very influential from that point of view. And but with but the, that's over content. Right. And with the AMA's key argument of cost, 
Is it? What well, did they do? They publish the maths. You know, is it a costly process or the economics? Look, in the documents, uh, and they're pretty complex. But in the in the documents on our website, there's a discussion that Professor Leader put together to show that um, the apparent savings are going to Elsevier versus savings that could be achieved internally aren't, aren't very much. Uh, but but um, I, I don't think the principle of outsourcing is a very bad one. I, I think it's how it's done, what you do with the existing staff, and who you choose to outsource to. And the biggest stumbling block of most of the people are the people are up in arms over a person who's an outstanding man in the medical profession who's done a very good job in his first two years ahead. They're very upset at the way he was sacked, mm-hmm. but then they were, I think, equally upset about the fact that it was outsourced to Elsevier. And the third thing is, as the debates unfolded, is we realise now that we're part of a much bigger international picture, which is about who profits from taxpayer-funded medical research. Let's get back to that. First up, what's the problem with Elsevier? Why, why are people unhappy with Elsevier? Well, um, this is, has amazing Australian content because between 2001 and 2005, Elsevier entered into an agreement with a large international pharmaceutical company and they produce six fake or phony medical journals with Australasian titles Mm -hmm. and those journals were used by drug company representatives to go and visit GPs to show them these published data but in fact it was highly selective data in a journal that really didn't exist now to Elsevier's credit um, they, the, the international leadership later on apologised for that and said it shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it happened, I think, it is totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And then added on to that, there's a, there have been boycotts in, of Elsevier publications in Europe and the USA, primarily because the, the business model of Elsevier is to try and gather more and more journals into its stable mm-hmm. and then sell them back to university libraries and, to, and to hospital libraries as packages. And because they've got 40% of the market, they've caught a lot of the journals and they can basically name their price. Yeah, so, so there's so a Coles or Woolworths. The libraries are yeah. struggling, struggling. Yeah, the Coles or Woolworths of publishing, they've managed exactly. to get a bit of a, um, mm. what do you call it, a monopoly. Yeah. Um, so the public-funded issue, this is really an interesting issue. I'm sure you'll have a lot to say on this one too, Mark. So the issue being that this research is all publicly funded, a lot of it, not all of it, some, a lot of research is funded by industry, such as drug companies, and a lot's funded by government, such as NHMRC and various other research groups. And so all this research gets published by people essentially on government funds and then someone else gets to profit about it. Tell us... what. Yeah, look, uh, it'd be interesting for a historian to go back over the last 30 years, but I think what this has crept up on us almost subconsciously. Mm-hmm. I think if you go back 30 years, most of the major journals were associational college journals and were subsidised. So, so people were grateful to have a place to, to publish their, their work. If, if the journal made little profit, it, it didn't matter, and most of them didn't, so there was no issue. But, but just as the big conglomerates have taken over the journals, it's become a much bigger issue in terms of... of, of, of companies profiting from um, not only the intellectual property of researchers, but also the taxpayer funds that have gone into a lot of the research. Can I just ask a quick follow-up question before, because I think Mark's got a question. Um, why don't places like NH and MSC, who fund the research, do what bands do, and say, yeah, you can play it, and you can make money on your radio station, but I've got to get royalties for 20 years, or whatever it is. Um, why can't they do that? Because you know they're, they're funding it. Surely there should be some royalty that returns to them if there's profit. 
I mean, that's an interesting model. There are all sorts of models, and the, 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 the new model that's coming through is sort of internet-based, open access, either for-profit or not-for-profit, where people pay a fee to get their paper published, but once it's there, everyone can see it. And, and I think that's probably going to overtake Elsevier's model eventually, at any rate. But, um, and, and perhaps the NHMRC and other taxpayer-funded federal government organisations should be lobbying for that to happen uh, earlier rather than later. So, yeah, I was going to say that I think there's big change happening and it's partly because of the online environment. So it means that previous models that have been stable for many years in terms of cost are becoming less stable and so things like online publishing. Places like the NIH and increasingly the NHMRC are basically saying... In the past, when I would publish a journal, the journal had the copyright to it, and I had to hand over the copyright. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter, because if it was a journal like the MJ, you knew that that was just the copyright, and that was fine. And if somebody from Brazil asked you for a copy because they couldn't get your MJA paper, they could see it online. You're not meant to send them a copy, but you might accidentally Mm -hmm. send them a copy. Whereas now what the NIH and NHMRC are saying is that, in fact, you really must have your... If it's their work funded by them, it must be available Online, so that they that they that so you in fact, say somebody like Elsevier can't have your copyright in the same way. So there's a lot of changes going on. So that it will be interesting to see what happens with the Elsevier model. The, the problem for somebody like me is we're constantly looking for an appropriate journal to publish in. But you know, as many people may not know or may know, is you you send out a paper which you think is marvellous to a high-ranking journal because there's a way of there's a you know yeah. kind of a. And you're composing your Nobel speech in your head. Yep. No, no. Well, I won't ever get one because I don't do basic science. You've got to be a basic scientist. But you've got a list of you know high impact journals like the top tier, the middle tier. It's a bit like you know, a bit like alcohol, really. You yeah. know? And then you're getting down to the well, bottom. Well, they have an impact factor, yeah, don't they? Exactly. They get it's a called score. an impact factor, a yeah. score. So you sort of, if you think it's a really superb piece of work, you'll send high. You'll get reviews. You may get in. You may get knocked back. That's cool. And then you go, okay. If you get knocked back, you look at the reviews. You take what you can from them and go to the next range. But when you've got a paper that then's falling down and you're suddenly thinking, I need to go somewhere there's a lot of what I call at the moment and it's really hard to tell if you're new to the game what we call junk journals or trash journals they're just literally the made-up journals and so we actually had a talk earlier this year to our group about these are the dodgy you know these are the dodgy journals they are not real journals they are trying to trap you they're trying to get your money you won't even go out to peer review they make it look like it's going out to peer review but you will pay a couple of thousand dollars to publish online because that's what's happening profit model and they're basically making profit out of young researchers who are not getting necessarily necessarily good guidance so it's a real problem at the moment that we're we, we have to keep a real eye on so this kind of this model where Elsevier funded journals that weren't real journals that means anybody else that put any articles there but they're so you know uh, are not actually going out to peer review because it's the peer review mm. getting back to what you said Di mm. before that is the the crux it is of the quality of the journal so yeah. so that none of you know nothing should be published without it going out to peer review and when you're not having real peer review then you don't know whether what you're looking at is a load of whatever nonsense, or, high garbage, qu- or high quality Well, it's a stamp of approval, too. It is. Mm. That's you what I'm know, saying. That's where you go. Approval. So how do you tell the difference between a pretend peer review and a real peer review? You basically, when they give you a two-day... when you get your, If I submit a, a paper to a journal yeah. and I get it back within two days and it's been peer-reviewed, I know that that's not so true. Yeah. But you, it's really <laughs> hard. We've got a list. Because we all take about a month to peer-review. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have a list at our... At, 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 um, in the Centre for Population Health at the Burnett, where we basically go, these are we know are the dodgy journals, mm. and that we will not, you know, we we don't send. But to. you'd expect to know. Would you expect to know who is peer reviewing you? 
No. No. no, no, that's, no the, but that's I, part of the problem, isn't it? Because you, that's the idea, is that you don't know, but therefore how do you um, check the integrity well, well, of the that, peer that's, review? That's another debate which is really interesting. Yeah. Some journals have gone to having uh, named peer reviews. Yeah. Mm. Oh. And, and I think you get better quality reviews that way, but it takes a bit of courage from both sides yes. for that yeah. to happen. Mm. Hey, Kerry... Um, what can people do to support um, or to better inform themselves? Look, the first thing is they should look at the website. Friends of the MJA, we'll put it on our... We'll yeah. link it to Friends ours. Friendsofthemja.net.au mm-hmm. um, and, and then decide for themselves. And they can sign up as a friend and take one of those. If you one of three views, they can say they want the AMCO decisions reversed or improved or somehow, or they can say they support the AMCO decisions. That's just at, so at very moment, fair and academic of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. At the moment, I'll tell you it's running. Yeah. We've had over 300 people sign up. Yep. Nobody has said they support the decisions of AMCO. And if they do, we'll six name them. I'm joking. I'm no, joking. We six, no, I tell you, six or seven are undecided, and the yeah. rest, rest uh, strongly oppose. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the starting point. And after that, I mean, it's up to individuals in a way. I, I've been asked, well, you know, are you going to continue to peer review? Will you continue to submit journals, etc.? Will you submit articles? Look, um, I want to see what happens over the next six months for myself, uh, mm-hmm. and I'd love to know what the contract is with Elsevier. I'd love to know exactly what's happening to the staff up there. I'd love to know what the outsourcing means, and, 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 and if, if the leadership of the MJA could tell, the AMA could tell us, maybe then I would continue. But at the moment, I'm, I'm really ambivalent about continuing support. And is it too late to get the revision decision reversed? Oh, look, I'm sure that there has been a contract signed with Elsevier and it would be very expensive to get out of. But, but I, I think the, the, the best outcome now would be that the AMA agreed to strengthen the board of AMCO, which has four people, none of whom have expertise in medical publishing. If that was strengthened, then, then they could oversight the contract with Elsevier much more effectively. And also if it was strengthened, they might be able to recruit a decent editor. And secondly, they need to have a charter of editorial independence. I mean, right. they've sacked two editors in the last three or four years and that can't continue. Thanks so much for coming in and filling in on this um Kerry, it's much appreciated. It's a very important issue. I encourage everyone to jump on, make the decision for themselves and and uh, throw in a vote. Three triple R I'm Dr. Doolittle. We've got Dr. Activity, a Melbourne occupational therapist in the studio. And our next guest, as I shuffle my bits of paper, is Professor Margaret Hellard. Now, it's a long, it's important, so bear with me. No, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I was going to say, don't you dare. <laughs> just <laughs> leave it be. <laughs> but let me just focus on a few things. I've known Marg for years because she, Marg works at, uh, is, well, she's the head of the Centre for Population Health at Burnett and Associate Director there as well and a professor. And for almost two decades, Marg's been um, doing work around infectious diseases, looking at their prevention, their transmission. She's done work in HIV, Hep B, Hep C, sexually transmitted um, infections, improving the management of individuals who already have the infection. Um, And she's also got lots of experience in all sorts of um, new research technologies, like using SMS and Facebook. She's really all over the the shop, as well as um, doing lots of community-based research. I mean all over the shop in a good way, by the way, Marg. (laughs) Not Not in in, in a psychiatry way. Yeah, not as in... I've got so many things going on. But you do some fantastic stuff. So, you know, so even though I've already said hello, of course, you know, formal welcome again to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Thanks, Steve. I actually say I've got the research equivalent of attention deficit disorder. (laughs) So you are all over the shop. Well, what I've worked out is the key thing to this is you you sort of 
get some ideas and, and the like. And then the most important thing is to identify really, really good people to work with mm. and to collaborate with and to bring on board. And so I have a research team of fabulously clever people doing fabulous things, and I think that's how you get to do a little bit of various things if you've got people working with you who are really good at what they do. Yeah. And you come in this morning to talk about Hep, hep C, C, Hepatitis yeah. C in particular. Why don't you get the ball rolling by tell us a little bit about it. What is Hep C and who gets it? Okay, so Hepatitis C is a virus. The way I best describe things is that Hepa is um, sort of the Greek for liver and itis is inflammation and so hepatitis means inflammation of the liver and because doctors are really imaginative and scientists are really imaginative what we said is there's hepatitis a b c d e f we mucked up there's not even one and there's a g and we even mucked that one up so basically they're viruses that causes inflammation of liver primarily there's other things that viruses that can upset the liver there's drugs there's alcohol there's all sorts of things that can upset the liver but they're the key viruses so c is one of the viruses that upsets mm-hmm. the liver they're entirely unrelated viruses often people think they're the same virus just a bit different but they're entirely unrelated viruses so hepatitis c upsets the liver and i always say you know, why would you give a toss? Essentially in medicine, my marker of why would I do anything is why would I give a toss about hepatitis C? Because it upsets the liver and it slowly, slowly, slowly causes fibrosis or scarring of the liver such that depending on a variety of things, somebody's liver can begin to fail them after maybe mostly 20 to 30 years. You begin to get so much scarring, you get a thing called cirrhosis Mm -hmm. and then liver failure and you're susceptible to liver cancers. So that's why we give a toss because we don't want people to get it so there's ways to stop it, or we don't want people who have got it to go on and get this really bad liver disease such that they get sick and can die from it because people do die from hepatitis C, liver failure and liver cancers. So a lot of our research and work, um, not just ours, but around the world and other people doing great things in Melbourne as well, is around going, how do I stop somebody from getting the infection? So you have to think who gets the infection mostly in Australia. It varies around the world. Or if somebody's got it, how do I let them know that they might have been at risk to have a blood test Mm -hmm. to be aware that they've got hepatitis C? Because a lot of people don't. Or if they do know, how do we get them into care? Because my question is around what's, what is it like to live with hepatitis C? Because I've met lots of um, patients, clients over the years who have hepatitis C. And unlike you, a lot, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them don't give a toss. They've got so used to this long, insidious sort of process that seems to have, for, in their eyes, has very little impact on their current life, if they're, especially if they're younger, and um, are a little bit confused about what treatments are available, but they can't really see what impact sometimes that their disease has. So, so what do you think it's like to live with hep so, C? So some people seem to have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever, particularly early on. Yes. But what I would be saying when we do studies of people is they recognise this significant stigma. So when people say to me, oh, there's no need to treat somebody with early hepatitis C infection, there's nothing wrong with them, um, what I would say is if you talk to that person, they will talk about having a bloodborne virus in their body, the stigma associated with that, because often as well in Australia people get it through a history of injecting drug use. Not everybody does. So there's also the stigma associated with that. For a young female, um, there is a 6% probability of passing the virus onto her baby if she was pregnant. So for a young... What about partner? uh, Low risk sexually. Is it? Outside of the setting of HIV, incredibly low risk. So do you tell people that they have to wear condoms if they've got hep C? No, in fact, what I say to people, I have a really simple way of of viewing it is, essentially, if you're having casual sex, you should wear condoms, but not related to hepatitis C. There's chlamydia, lots of other stuff out there. And if you're not having 
casual sex, so these sex with your hands in your pockets, you know, as I always say, yeah. is um, then basically you have a conversation with your partner about the incredible low risk of, of sexual transmission of hepatitis C. That is outside the setting of somebody who is HIV positive, and then it's another right. conversation again. Mm. So why do you... Do you know, it's just a little point of... Do you need to tell your partner then that you've got hep C, given it's an incredibly low risk and, they can't, and they're unlikely to catch it? Because that would be an incredibly hard... Com- it, any mm. ST, mm. Anything that can be transmitted sexually, mm. even though this clearly you wouldn't call an STD, but it mm. has this low, low, low risk. Mm. Um, you know, you, you meet... Not that it ever happens to me, because I just watch TV, but, you know, imagine you met someone at a bar and, you, you know, things are going well, or you get, you know, or you even you're going out with pockets. someone for six months and, you know... Do you have those... Those conversations must be incredibly tough. Well, those conversations are incredibly tough for anybody with a chronic blood-borne viral infection. It's a really hard conversation. So the same with hepatitis C, HIV and hepatitis B. They're really hard conversations and there's no right or wrong answer. And I'll have these conversations with many a patient about, you know, somebody who's got chronic hepatitis B, who they've, you know, that they might have got it from mother to child. They've had it all their life. They suddenly discover they've got it. And when they're at the bar meeting a person for the first time, when the person with hepatitis C is out at the bar meeting a person for the first time, with HIV is out at the bar meeting a person for the first time, it's a really, you know, that's actually not this conversation you want to strike up. The thing to understand is, not with C because it's actually not well transmitted, but for B and HIV, if you have practiced safe sex, mm. and there's, we can go into a different conversation with HIV, which we won't go there today, your risk of transmission is incredibly low. So you could reasonably say you don't need to say. What I always say to people is if that relationship becomes an ongoing relationship, yeah. what's the conversation you're going to have and when are you going to have it? Yeah. And that's the key thing for people. And, in, and the same with hepatitis C, that at some stage, you know, relationships are complex things based on trust, essentially. And at some stage, you have to be able to have that conversation because otherwise you're going to come a cropper, mm. not related actually to you passing the virus onto the person, but because that's a conversation you didn't have with the person at the right time, and, the right time and to have mm. so that they have choice. It's not really to do... Often these things you know, aren't to do with a risk of a virus being passed on, but a person's perception of risk. When we look at risk in vaccination, in all sorts of things of how people perceive risk and the doctor do best... This is what we should do. What people complain about, more broadly, not even just in our area, is that I wasn't... It's my choice about risk. Mm. You, you're not allowed to impose risk on me. I can choose my risk. So in the same way as I might choose to take risks to do with what I do in my daily life, don't you dare impose risk mm. on me mm. in terms of, like, say, that's the vaccination argument, all of these things. You may like it or you may not like it, but it's an important thing to understand that it's an individual is very, very... Most individuals are very, very mindful that they get the choice of what risks they will or won't take, yep. not another person. Mark, a lot of the people that I've spoken to with hep C, especially over the past couple of years, are a bit confused. They say things have changed with hep C, but they can't really tell me what has changed. Yep. What, what are the big advances in this area? There is a massive change that's just happening. Um, Basically, previously, there's been treatments for hepatitis C, which in general we'll call pegylated interferon and, ribo- pegylated interferon Great. and ribavirin. Yep. Now, these two medications have been all right at curing some people's hepatitis C, but not everyone. But yes. significant, significant side effects. Wicked. I've poisoned... What are they? <sighs> It's a bit what, like having the flu, I, isn't it? I would it? say, yeah, I, people, my, my question, terrible. I'd ask back the other way, is what aren't they? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. mm. My best way of describing it is, is people have flu-like symptoms yeah. and aches and pains. But most importantly, what I warn a pa- 
patient, but pretty soon I won't need to because there's, what I want to say is to flag it, there's fabulous new drugs coming along. Great. But previously the old ones is it would find a chink in your armour. Yeah. If you had a mental health problem, it would exacerbate it. If you had this, it would exacerbate yeah. it. The Evil. new drugs coming, which we call direct-acting antiviral agents, yes. there's a suite of them coming through, mm. called DAAs, these are fabulous. Mm. And it's, a, it's not often in medicine that you get to be working in an era well, when we talk about a paradigm shift changing, that that's actually what's happening right now, right here. These drugs... Sorry. I was going to say, so does this mean you'll be able to eliminate? Yes. See, like, like smallpox, like those in my diseases view, in my view, yes. basically gone? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So I've been that's in... a paradigm shift. Now I get it. <laughs> yeah. These drugs are fantastic. Mm. People kind of think we're exaggerating it because mm. we exaggerate sometimes in medicine, like we've cured cancer, we've done this, we've done that. Very clever people have developed drugs which mean that hepatitis C can be cured in over 90% of the people who take the medication, the virus will be cured. Wow. That's extraordinary for a chronic infectious disease. That's extraordinary for any disease that mm. is chronic. Mm. The treatment is of 12 weeks, invariably, maybe down to 8 for most people, 8 to 12 weeks, and there's minimal side effects with these medications. Some treatment regimes are just one tablet a day so this allows us to number one stop people from dying from their hepatitis c yep number two and this is the important bit when we talk about eliminating i've been involved with the world health organization in terms of setting you know what are the guidelines and the targets for elimination and as well we can stop people from dying who've got that significant liver disease Mm. but also if we treat people who are the transmitters so this is when i put on my epidemiological hat rather than my clinical hat if we treat people who are the people who are transmitting the virus between each other often unknowingly then we can stop transmission so we can turn off the tap of infection and that means that in the long run we can eliminate because that's where you you have to work if you want to get rid of the transmission if you want to eliminate something you have to stop transmission Mm. so you need to stop the deaths and people getting sick Mm. but you also need to eliminate and that's what these new drugs will allow us to do as well if we get enough of those drugs out to the right people because we just need to in australia treat people who inject drugs so we don't need vaccines a vaccine would be really helpful. Right. Okay, I will never say we don't need a vaccine. In fact, it would be really good because we're involved in, yep. this is dorky, but models to do with, and to bring in a vaccine would be really, really helpful as well. And there's trials going on for vaccines. But the combination of these really good medications plus vaccines, yep. but even without a vaccine, we know with our models and other people's models around the world, we can begin to eliminate by 2030. If we had a vaccine, yep. it would be faster and probably less expensive. And it's daily oral medication. Yes. How yep. advanced can someone's hep C be and they still benefit from the treatment? Can they have liver failure you know, in the yep. late stages? Look, you've got to be really careful, and this is where it becomes a sort of a highly specialised thing. So somebody can have cirrhosis and be treated. If they have a thing called decompensated cirrhosis, yep. where basically their liver is really, really struggling, we have to be incredibly careful about treating somebody at that stage because you can tip them over the edge because of some inflammation that goes on during treatment. And so that's when that person may be at a stage where you can't, mm-hmm. but they're at a liver transplant stage. And if you do the liver transplant, then you can treat somebody. So even though with somebody, with some people with some level of decompensation, um, you can have a look at treatment. There's and still benefits. There are, look, it's getting to the stage where we're, we'll, we'll also get better at, at it. So you have to be really careful with this, you know, if somebody's particularly yep. sick. But stepping back from that, yes, we can treat most people. Mm. So what's the catch? The catch is the cost. Right. Oh, How much really? does it cost? <laughs> Whackingly huge yeah. at the moment. But, the, but it's not a real cost. So when the first lot of drugs came out, um, the company that, that, um, that uh, 
I did like it sort of brought the first lot of drugs to the market and um, we're saying in the United States it was $80,000 a treatment. Now that's not... For the, the 12 weeks? Yep. That's not the cost of the treatment. The actual cost to manufacture it, work has been done to show that it's vanishingly smaller than that. So the issue then is one of negotiation and I always think of it as being, you know, Captain Belboza and Pirates of the Caribbean. We're now at a time of negotiation. Yes. And so to me, what we need to be working on is rather than getting caught up with the cost, because it's a false cost, it's, a, it's drug companies quite reasonably saying, I have to get some money back. Yeah, we've because invested we've billions invested. or whatever, and this is our chance to get the money back before the patent runs out yeah. in 15 years or yeah. whatever it is. And, 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 you know, other drugs have fallen over and the like. But at the same time, there's what I would call reasonable recovery of costs. And so uh, the pushback is there needs to be some level of what's reasonable recovery. You don't have to make so, so much money, perhaps. Mm. And a bit like with the HIV medications when they became available, mm. how do we get them to um, resource-limited countries and make sure that they have them as well? So, Well, that was a wonderful battle in the end. Yeah. I mean, that battle went for, it seemed to me, five to ten years. But in the end, a lot of third-world countries and places mm. that really needed them ended up getting the drugs at pretty good prices. Absolutely, mm. and that's happening now already with the hepatitis C drugs. So the, yeah, so the lessons that we learnt and the battles that we fought for the lower cost of drugs um, for the HIV medications are already being replicated. The companies also learnt lessons from that and are being clever in, in, in interesting ways to try and maintain costs. But at the end of the day, a drug that's costing 80000 in the United States very quickly was costing only 1000 at most in Egypt. Now, there's blocks on those kind of things, but it'll even be cheaper. So we will get these costs down. So for me, what my, my view on this is that the cost is in irrelevance to the plans we need to be putting in place for an elimination program in yep. a country like Australia because we already know that those costs are being negotiated substantially down by the PBAC and the government. And the question is how do we set up to start a program of elimination to, to reach the targets to be ready for 2030? Key to that is for people to be aware that the treatments are there, they're coming, they're here, they'll be around in the end of the year and onwards. So right. people who may... End of this year. Yes, at least for a particular... I won't go in, well, yes. can go into the details, but for different genotypes, yep. but they're coming through. So PBAC made their recommendation... PBAC? Sorry, the Pharmaceutical, Pharmaceutical Benefits, Benefits Advisory Committee. Committee. Jinx. Sorry, I beg your pardon. <laughs> so Made cute a... to see doctors doing this. <laughs> I know, we're such dorks. <laughs> and, we, and I still say jinx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really sad. Oh, no, no. <laughs> At least they're not like snap. Okay, carry on. So, so the PBAC re- recommendation was that the drugs be make available for everybody. It doesn't matter what level of liver scarring you have, which was a really, in my view, pleasing recommendation because mm. mm. my concern was that they were going to restrict them to people yep. just with severe disease. And as much as I, as a clinician, really want to treat those people, I also want to eliminate and to eliminate it needs to be with people with mild disease but also for the young woman who doesn't want to transmit it to her baby to the young man who basically wants to join the army and there's sort of all and and just in terms of what i call a basic human right yeah because there's a lot of stigma not just the stigma and also people i didn't sort of finish that sort of answer way back yeah people often have tiredness and a lethargy and non-specific unwellness that they don't even recognize to be their hepatitis c and when we've used these new drugs it's been quite amazing for Mm. some people who have said i don't think i've got any symptoms they say i feel so much better Mm, they feel the difference so quality of life quality of life it will improve can i ask a question because there's bound to be people listening who are wondering you know whether they can get them Uh, can people get them now their trials and things like that or they just have to wait yeah there are some trials going on but most trials um, have some level of restrictions. I personally think of it as not waiting. What I would be saying to anybody who thinks they may have hepatitis C but is not sure is to get a blood test. Yep. Anybody who does have hepatitis C that's put it on the back burner for years because I don't like the sound of those other drugs, I'm not feeling unwell, 
all of those kind of reasons should be approaching their local doctors about having what I call a workup for their hepatitis C. Now, the thing they need yep. to be mindful of is their local doctor might not know that there's these new drugs coming, so they need to maybe educate their new dr- yeah. doctor. Tell them they heard yeah. on Triple R. It's yeah. all yeah. true. Tell, them tell the doctor they should yeah. listen to Triple R. But, yeah. Yeah. If they've got any questions, and this is what I'd be saying to people, is that they need the Hepatitis Victoria, yep. Hepatitis Australia, Harm Reduction Victoria for people who inject drugs, have great new information about this and are ready and raring to go. So as well, if they go to a doctor and they're not getting um, the advice that they thought that they should, contact Hepatitis Victoria, contact Harm Reduction Victoria. They will then provide them with information about where they can go to see doctors who will know what to do more about these new drugs. So to me, anybody that might have been at risk should get a test. Anybody that knows they've got it should be getting worked up to Mm. be ready for when the new treatments come. Mm. Then the new treatments for particular genotypes will be likely available at the end of the year and people should be very nicely, what I say is, demanding them. I want hepatitis C treatment now, please. I have a chronic infection. I would like to be cured now, please. Mm. Mm. It's getting that message across, isn't it? I'm loving it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. When, I mean, these sorts of paradigm shifts, as you say, because like yeah. you, Marg, we were around both working in HIV yeah. in 1996. Yep. And we had just we had people who were, I, you know, interestingly, going back to that story before of, you know, do you prepare for your death? Do you want to know? You know, we had people who had sold up their homes, done their world trips, yeah. said their goodbyes, written yep. their stuff, and then the new treatments came yep. in and they're still around. Some yep. of them are still I, around today. I, I remember clearly I was on uh, maternity leave for much of 1995 and I came back to work in 96 and mm. the first patient I saw and uh, this patient knows who you are because we've had this conversation and I can remember going into the room and thinking oh goodness they looked so unwell and I was mm. and I organized for them to be admitted to hospital and thinking I will never see this person again my first time I've seen them I still see this yeah. guy mm. today so it's as, big, it's as big as that isn't it's, it? it's, 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 it's medical it's, it's big if not bigger than that yes and you know what because radiotherapy has been going for 20 years I reckon we'll still be going in 35 in 15 when it's eradicated and we'll have a show talking about how <laughs> so he's been fully eradicated we will. Hey, um, it's time for us to say our goodbyes and hand over to the wonderful geniuses what's uh, is that genii geniuses genii let's call them Einstein and Gog a go-go they, gee, they look like genies sometimes they're magical <laughs> um, so look thanks everyone for listening obviously um, check out our Facebook page Radiotherapy on Triple R also special thanks to uh, Dr Kerry Breen and Prof Marg Hallard for coming in today and tell us, telling us about all those wonderful wonderful things we shall be back next week I think Malpractice might be sitting in the chair next week with his crew um, so uh, until then everyone stay well and have a nice week Two years from now, somebody's going to go crazy and wake up in the morning and say, uh, Amazon Lake Palmer, the Grateful Dead. Totally, uh, crap. Triple This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.